Everybody, welcome to another episode of this show. So we have we have some very exciting news. Uh, last time I talked to you about. Uh, by the way, I'm sorry I, I missed l- last week. That was a. Uh, I was planning to do a an on the road show, but then I ended up not going on the road, which was great because I didn't want to. But uh, you know, so on my normal recording day, I was like, eh. I don't need to record because I'm going to do it later. And then it turned out I wasn't going to do it later. And so I just didn't do it at all. But uh, last time we talked about how I think the way to sell this show is to call it the American Splendor of uh, podcasts, which is to say, you know, uh, an artistic guy toiling in obscurity. Now, he may not seem artistic, uh, at first glance, you know, I might not seem like an artiste who is uh, doing artistic things, but you know, once once I'm on the the death's door, everyone will be like, "Ah, he was un- underrated genius." This is what I'm going to tell myself. I mean, in a way, this is how I make myself comfortable with not being at all famous now, because I'm like, well, if I got famous now, I would know the sort of peak of my fame. And then once that inevitably swung downward, I would be faced with like, well, that was the peak. But, you know, having no fame before my death means, hey, after I'm dead, I could, who knows? Who knows how high I can fly? After that, uh, since then, I've decided to change gears. Um... And so what, what's coming now is a pathetic attempt to crawl out of obscurity. Uh, in a few, there are a few different prongs to this. And um, if they don't work, well, then I guess we'll go back to American Splendor, huh? I don't know. Did he have attempts? Did he make attempts? Does making the attempts uh, sort of undo the artistic cosity of it? Doesn't matter. Because you know what? For me, it doesn't. So, uh, exciting announcement, the first, is related to this podcast. Our next episode, uh, I'm going to be doing an interview with famous author. Uh, hold on. I'm going to be doing an interview with famous author... Jeff Strand. Yes, Jeff Strand, a personal favorite of mine. Um, I, I was, so I was reading his latest thing. Well, I don't, it's, it's complicated, but one of his latest-ish things, which is a novelization of the movie Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Now, listeners to this show know I just did my own flirtation with novelization. Uh which is the, shit, Alan Dean Foster story. 
Um, my own flirtation with novelization with last year's Potawin, Phantom of the Hip Hopra. And uh, I don't know how this happened, but basically... Jeff Strand got involved with the movie Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, and a publisher was like, let's do a novelization of this, like, you know, 30-some years later. And uh, it's fucking hilarious. And I love it. And I was telling Poon Master Flex about it. Um, if anyone happens to be listening to this for the first time, Poon Master Flex is my girlfriend. That was her chosen nickname uh, because she had to make an Xbox handle one time and she was like, well, I don't want, I don't want like 14 year old boys to call me names and stuff. So this will make them think I'm one of them. And I was like, yeah, you're not wrong. So Poon Master Flex was like, have you ever thought about like emailing this guy? And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, I don't know. You're always talking about his books and then how he, you know, he's some self-published, some traditional published and just seems like maybe someone you should talk to or something. And I was like, I wouldn't know what to say. And then I was like, Eureka. Cause you know, I thought if only I had some outlet in which I could sort of create a convenient excuse. This is a, a little side tangent. Um, I worked on a work project. Someone else started the project at my work, which was a podcast about like local history and stuff. And I mostly agreed to do it. This was a project probably in the, this was like almost 10 years ago. Um, and he knew that I did podcasting stuff and also that I was easy to work with and not a nonsense person. So he was like, we could do this together. Um, and most of this, I think, came about because I think most middle-aged men go through a podcast phase where... I think, well, let's back up a little. Most middle-aged men go through a phase where they're like, there has to be something that I can do for money that's better than the job that I do for money. And uh, one of the options that comes up is podcasting. Now, this is where uh, people split into two camps. And I would say it's guys who look at this American life and decide that doesn't seem so hard. And guys who look at Joe Rogan and say, that doesn't seem so hard. Now, I do want to specify and clarify. At this time, Joe Rogan's podcast was really not, um, I don't know. People didn't give a shit about it so much. It was mostly just another podcast where people got interviewed. Okay. Um, and This American Life was also, you know, those were probably two bigger podcasts, but it wasn't it this wasn't such a politically charged divide at that time it was more like it just seemed like you know people were kind of one route or the other but it was kind of the same spiritual idea which is like this seems like a good way to make money that's not my job so i got involved doing this podcast and part of why i got involved doing it was there's a university in town and I've always wanted to get into the tunnels underneath the university because I'd heard many stories of these tunnels and uh, I did at one point see the entrance to the tunnels, but I've never actually been able to get into them. And I'm at a point in my life where I'm like, I would apply for a job there 
and maybe lose the job, risk the entire job just because I'd be like, well, if I was working there, I think I could get in the tunnels and then just be like, look, man, I saw this fucking door. I went down this hallway. I don't know where I am. Something. I could come up with something. You know, maybe I would uh, go to a shelter and get a, a, a dog and release the dog into the tunnels and be like, I saw a dog run into the tunnel. What was I supposed to do? So I've, I'm pursuing the dog. But anyway, I, I did that project almost entirely in hopes of getting into the tunnels and my dreams have been dashed. And I have not uh, had any success. I did try and contact some people at the university and whatever. And, you know, I tried a couple different pitches like, oh, it'd be fun to go into the tunnels. And then I was like, maybe if we win in the tunnels and, you know, I saw what it was and explained it to people, they wouldn't be curious and then they wouldn't fuck around in the tunnels. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. Um, never, never received anything back. But anyway, so it's almost like at this point, I was like, if only there were some convenient thing that I was doing that could be used as an excuse to interview Jeff Strand. And then lo and behold, I was like, you've been doing that for like 10 years. So here we go. So we're going to have Jeff Strand on the show next time. And uh, I'm going to interview him and ask him some questions. My goal is to get all of you to try one of his books, um, but also to make a show that's like fairly entertaining. You know, I don't want it to be too insidery. I don't want it to be too hardcore. Like, well, basically, if you're not uh, into publishing or Jeff Strand already, I think it'll still be fun. Um, it could also be a total train wreck, which I think would be fun to listen to, probably. In terms of like, I don't, I don't, I'm not a, a gifted interviewer. Um, here's my level of giftedness in interviewing. I do recognize that what they do on This American Life or what Joe Rogan does is not easy. Um, it's not as natural as it, as it seems. And uh, there's a reason that, you know, they are popular. I'm no Terry Gross. But uh, I, I think it's going to be fun. I'm working to like come up with questions ahead of time. If you all listening have specific questions you want me to ask him or things you want to t hear him talk about, you know, hit me up in the next week. But uh, I also, I guess I would, you know, to introduce you to him, I wanted to read something of his on here. Just a short little thing to kind of give you an idea. I've been bothering Poonmaster Flex with excerpts from Attack of the Killer Tomatoes all week because they're hilarious to me, but I've had to accept that it's a little complicated because the book is like um, jokes that are like in the narrative. Then characters also make jokes sort of about the writing of the book, and then the writer of the book kind of comes in here and there. You know, it's sort of all over in that way, and it's it's great. And when you read it, it totally makes sense. But when you just read someone like half a page out of context, it doesn't, it, it doesn't have the same effect. Um, and I, so I didn't, I wanted to read something from that, but you know, I can't, and no one's called me about doing the audiobook yet. I would love to do that. But anyway, 
This is from Jeff Strand's book called The Writing Life, which is a, a memoir about his life, writing life, I guess. And um, some about publication, some about events, some just about, you know, the process, all that stuff. But uh, this is a part that I found particularly fun. So here we go. At one of my signings, a woman picked up one of my books, which she did not purchase, and asked how much the publisher was allowed to change. I explained that it was a back-and-forth process with the editor, that you worked as a team to make it the best book possible. They wouldn't get to do that for my book, she said. They wouldn't get to change a thing. It's just not that kind of book. She went on to describe how her book was filled with carefully crafted symbolism, but I kind of zoned out. Believe me, I absolutely love the freedom that comes with self-publishing. If I want the next paragraph of this book to be an unrelated anecdote about seeing a hippopotamus at the zoo, I can do it and nobody can stop me. This one time we were at the zoo and the hippo tank had a glass wall. And one of the hippos swam right up to us. It was right there. And all of the onlookers oohed and awed with delight. It was a magical moment, something the children present would think about with a smile on their face as they drifted off to sleep. And then, without warning, the clear water of the tank became significantly less clear as a thick, murky cloud emerged from the hippo's hindquarters. There was a gasp from the crowd as the hippopotamus took a great big aqua dump right before our eyes. Suddenly, the moment was much less magical, though perhaps more memorable. It's great that I have the freedom to include the, that entirely true story, but was it the right thing to do? At that same zoo on a different day, an employee was leading a llama to a different area, and she asked everybody to move out of the way as she passed through. But this, <laughs> but this little boy ran right up behind the llama, and it kicked him dead on square in the nuts. This llama couldn't see its target, but it got him with laser scope precision with a great big whap sound. Oh, man, he cried out as he ran back to his parents. Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. A medic appeared so quickly that it was as if she'd been summoned from the void, but obviously nobody else was invited to look at the damage to this unfortunate little boy's genitals, and their status remains a mystery to this day. Obviously, this chapter would be better, or at least more focused, without those two detours. That is why, as authors, it's important to have somebody look at our work and say, Hey, Jeff, it's kind of amusing that this kid is probably sterile, I suppose, but it's not really relevant to the overall message you're trying to convey in this chapter, and I strongly recommend that it be cut. My default setting when working with editors is, yes, you're right, because most of the time they are. So there you go. <laughs> I feel I feel like that's a nice summary of his style and that kind of thing, you know, and Attack of the Killer Com Tomatoes does that in places where, you know, he's like, for example, I could do this, and then he just does it. So I think this is going to be fun. Um, I'm trying to also, I read through the FAQ on his website, which is part of how this all came about, because like one of the first few questions is, will you be on my podcast? And he's like, yes, email me here. And uh, I emailed him, and he got back to me in, like, five minutes. But, um, you know, part of my email was I tried to be very honest and be like, listen, this is not like a, uh, a top-tier podcast by any stretch of the imagination. And I was like, I can send you, you know, stats and stuff if you'd like, but if you're asking for those stats, I'm going to just say you probably are going to just say no. So, you know, be prepared, I guess. But um, 
basically, I gave him a lot of chances to say no and to be like, yeah, you know, I don't know if this is a good use of my time. Um, I even said like, you know, hey, if it comes down to it and my podcast is the one that makes you change your mind on your yes, I'll appear on your podcast policy, I will wear that with a certain amount of pride. (laughs) You know, and that's all I could do. And uh, I'll still love your books. But he's still coming. I tried to listen to some other things he was on um, because in preparation for this. So, I, you know, I was like, Jeff Strand podcast. And there's a couple websites that'll track if you like an author, let's say, and it'll show you which shows they've been on. Um, and the first thing that came up, I was like, oh, fuck. Because it was a podcast about like... Um, uh, working with organizations that work to help people with disabilities. And uh, the guest was Jeff Strand and somebody else, and it was some kind of like disability advocate services for Tennessee. And I said, oh, fuck, when I saw this, because I was like, oh, my God. Like, this is how he's normally using his time. Being on my podcast is going to be such an incredible waste of time compared to that. Fortunately, there's another Jeff Strand, and this was that other Jeff Strand. So I breathed a, a large sigh of relief because I was like, okay, so I'm not, I'm not using his time when, you know, like two months ago he was on this podcast talking about the work he does with this foundation and stuff. Thank God. I'm sure that Jeff Strand does good things and helps people with his time and money. I know he's going to be at Scares That Care, which is like a horror con that helps people out. But, you know, I was just like, oh, fuck. (laughs) What have I done? What have I done? You know, it'd be like having a... It'd be like if Barack Obama appeared on this show and I was just asking him about... uh, Fuck, I don't even know. His dad jeans, his mom jeans, which maybe he started the trend with that. Who knows? So that that's uh, prong one of my three-pronged approach. Prong two is I'm going to... Uh, so a local bookstore uh, basically ha- takes consignment from local authors. A small number of books every year. And the open period for reading is in March. So we're going to give that a shot. Uh, I'm going to take them to your runaway because one of their requirements is that your title and name appear on the book's spine. And most of my other stuff, I can get it printed up, but they're too small. So they don't have anything on the spine. Um, But that one does have the info on the spine. And my other choices would be Exhaustive Review of Model Land and Origins. So I think Dear Runaway is my best chance. Third tier, there's an event in town called Monster Day, which is like a... uh, I guess it's kind of like a horror convention thing, but it's outdoors in the in like August, so you know it's not like it doesn't feel that horrory. But uh, in town, we've got this big company, Distortions Unlimited, that does all kinds of monster stuff. And the guy who runs that, his son is the head of the food bank, so it's basically a big thing that benefits the food bank. I think what I'm going to end up doing is getting a vendor booth there and uh, selling my short horror books and stories uh, at a very low price. So I'm going to apply for a vendor's booth 
and see if I can sell some of those. And I think the plan is to sell them for about a buck, which is a money loss, which Poonmaster Flex was like, not thrilled about. Not because it was a money loss, but because she was like, I just don't want you to like undervalue your stuff. But I kind of think my theory is like, if someone's walking by, the chances that they're just going to buy a book don't seem high. But I feel like if they buy, if it's a dollar, like a dollar is worth taking a chance on, in my opinion. You walk away with a, a little short story or something for a buck. That seems worth it to me. So currently I've got three that'll work for that. I've got Ghost Dick, of course, Private Eye, uh, which is, you know, comedy, but has monsters and stuff in it. So it has to be sort of monstery horror themed. Um, I've got Harold's Coming, which is a gory, very adult story. And My Mother's Silver Bowl, which is also kind of a horror story, horror adjacent. And uh, my plan is to try and bust out two or three more. Maybe try and get one that's like kind of for kids. Um, that kids would think was fun and would enjoy. And see if I can get that done by the time the thing starts. So, this is a, this is a very ambitious Pete that you're hearing from today. Yeah, in uh, regards to ambitious Pete. I was telling Poonmaster Flex, like, oh, I guess this is like, you know, I'm I'm entering one of the manic phases. So I guess let's ride this energy high until <laughs> till we get to one of the more depressive phases and we'll move on. Um, so today's show, other than being about me, is about some Ig Nobel Prizes. Ig Nobel. So it's kind of a parody of the Nobel Prize. And I found, I found a few articles that I thought were pretty good and uh, found what I think is my favorite year overall. So I'm going to go through a few of these. So what these are are um, prizes that sort of honor, well, they call it the unusual, the imaginative, and they spur people's interest in science, medicine, and technology. Um, these are all real, except there were three in 1991 and one in 1994. But, uh, so we're not going to worry about that too much. But I, I wanted to pick some highlights, and then we'll get to my favorite year. So in 1991, in biology, uh, Robert Clark Graham won, and he was uh, the selector of seeds and prophet of propagation for his pioneering development of the Repository of Germinal Choice, a sperm bank that accepts donations from only Nobelians and Olympians. Now, I looked this up to make sure it wasn't one of the fake ones, and it, it certainly is not. Um, it was a sperm bank in California that operated for almost 20 years, uh, and it is commonly believed to have accepted only donations from recipients of the Nobel Prize, although it, in fact, accepted donations from non-Nobelists also. <laughs> and it was dubbed the Nobel Prize Sperm Bank by media reports at the time. The only contributor who became known publicly was William Shockley, Nobel Laureate in Physics, which is hilarious because I was like, and you know, you can see his, his little picture and stuff, and you're just like, oh, that's unfortunate. It's like, 
you win the Nobel Prize. Okay, imagine your dad wins the Nobel Prize and you're like, that's not bad. But then you can't tell anybody about it because you're like, he's also, if they look him up, because certainly they're going to look him up. Um, and then they're going to get to personal life and see like, oh, I wonder if he's in here and blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, oh, okay, here's who he married to and blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Here's what it says under his personal life about his kids, which I guess, so this would probably prevent you from directing anyone to your dad's Wikipedia. Although one of his sons earned a PhD at Stanford University and his daughter graduated from Radcliffe College, Shockley believed his children, quote, represent a very significant regression. My first wife, their mother, had not as high an academic achieving standard as I had. Oh my God. Um, you know, then it talks about he was an accomplished uh, rock climber, which is good. Um, he was a popular speaker, lecturer, and amateur magician. Uh, pretty good, uh, pretty good dad stuff here. He was known for his practical jokes, and he had a longtime hobby of raising ant colonies. Great. But then you get to the third paragraph. Shockley donated sperm to the Repository for Germinal Choice, a sperm bank founded by Robert Clark Graham, Clark Graham in hopes of spreading humanity's best genes. Um, though Shockley was the only one to publicly acknowledge his involvement. However, Shockley's controversial views brought the Repository for Germinal Choice a degree of notoriety and may have discouraged the other Nobel Prize winners from donating sperm. According to PBS, Shockley was cruel towards his children and unhappy in his life. He, oh my God, he reportedly tried playing Russian roulette as part of an attempted suicide. Good Lord. Okay. Well, and his children reportedly learned of his death by reading his obituary in the newspaper. This is so weird because it makes me wonder, like, so did this guy donate sperm to this thing because he was like, well, maybe other super smart people will get my super smart sperm and have super smart babies, unlike my first wife. But just like, wow. I mean, how fucking... Most people... Okay, I think most people, even if they thought this privately, like they thought, eh, my first wife was not really up to my personal academic standards, probably wouldn't say anything for the specific reason that they're like, you know... That'd be kind of a dick move, because basically I'm saying my kids are dumb. But Robert Shockley was like, eh, or William Shockley was like, eh, fuck it, I don't care. She's dumb, they're dumb, everyone's dumb. And you know, this? these kids are like, I got a PhD at Stanford, like, what do you want from me? I got to win a Nobel Prize? Good Lord. This is, I guess this is the upside of having a dad who's like a felon. Because you're like, well, okay, on one hand, dad was an anesthesiologist. That's pretty high achieving. He had kids, you know, he had families. But you're like, I mean, he got divorced like three times and he spent like 15 years in and out of prison. So, you know, there's a high-low there. And basically, if I can avoid doing even, if I can avoid doing a significant amount of prison time, 
even if I did like 90 days, I'd still be doing better than he did. So like, I don't know. It is an advantage. You're like, well, if he sucks, I only have to do, you know, that you're like, you want better for your kids than you had. And uh, I don't really have to have it that good to achieve that. Let's move on to 1993, uh, where we've got, let's see, the medicine category. Presented to James F. Nolan, Thomas J. Stilwell, and John P. Sands Jr., Medical Men of Mercy, uh, for their painstaking research report, Acute Management of the Zipper Entrapped Penis. (laughs) Now, here's what's really funny about this. I looked this up on a couple things. And it's from the Journal of Emergency Medicine in 1990. It's about two pages long. Um, I can read you the abstract. A zipper-entrapped penis is a painful predicament that can be made worse by overzealous intervention. Described as a simple, basic approach to release that is the least traumatic to both patients and provider. Um, And then that's it. So it's like you can get it through an... Uh, institution or like, you know, purchase. Let's see if I wanted to purchase this PDF. $31.50. I'm imagining like I'm trying to purchase this. My penis is trapped in my zipper. And I'm like, well, there's a highly academic text on emergency medicine about this exact situation. What luck? And then I go to look at it and I'm like, I cannot find this anywhere. And I'm like, do I want to pay $31? And, uh, you know, meanwhile, I'm trapped. I don't know what the what the thing is here. Maybe I should see if I can get this through the library. I'm going to see if I can do that tomorrow. I'm going to put that on my to-do list. And then uh, if I can get it, I'm going to share this information. I know I'm probably not supposed to, but I feel like this is the kind of information that should be out in the world, not hidden behind these barriers. This is why people don't trust you, medical science. You, you've got this important info. It's really not like, I mean, come on. Let's, let's go. This information needs to be, this information like the zipper and trapped penis should be free. Okay. I think what I would do is cut the front of my pants off and then try and like separate the two sides of the pants holding the zipper you know, from below or something, and that way maybe I can, uh, maybe I can just pull them to the side or something. I don't know. This is hurting me to talk about, so let's just move on. 1995 in literature, where we have the following. Presented to David B. Bush and James R. Starling of Madison, Wisconsin, for their research report, Rectal Foreign Bodies, Case Reports, and a Comprehensive Review of the World's Literature. The citations include reports of, among other items, seven light bulbs, a knife sharpener, two flashlights, a wire spring, a snuff box, an oil can with potato stopper, 11 different forms of fruits, vegetables, and other foodstuffs, a jeweler's saw, a frozen pig's tail, a tin cup, a beer glass, and one patient's remarkable ensemble collection consisting of spectacles, a suitcase key, a tobacco pouch, and a magazine. Now, cramming things in your butt. 
Eleven different forms of fruits, vegetables, and other foodstuffs. That I get. You go through the grocery store, you see a cucumber, you see a zucchini to a lesser extent, you see a yellow squash, perhaps, you see a carrot. All of these things, I'm like, you know, that's it's basically a graduated cylinder of some kind, right? Uh, that, you know, starts at a smaller point and gets larger. A banana. These all kind of make sense. They also make sense to me because they're around. You know what I mean? They're uh, tools of convenience, let's say. So I get it. Um, a light bulb, I also get in the way of like, well, I guess if you, <laughs> if you started with the screw-in end, you would be like, I feel like this isn't going to get trapped in my butt. But also, it's like, if I can think of something that I wouldn't want to have inside of me when it broke, light bulb is pretty close to the top. Do you know what I mean? That's I guess that's the other advantage I see of, like, a carrot. Because I'm like, let's say this broke off inside my butt. I don't know if I would be concerned uh, to a, a great degree, because I'd be like, well, I've crapped out carrots before, right? But a light bulb just, you know, um, but, the, you know, a flashlight again, I'm like, I could see some flashlights, especially there are like some of those, I don't know when they would be 70s, 80s eras flashlight. They all kind of have a chrome look to them. They're pretty, uh, pretty penis shaped or pretty vibrator shaped at least. So, yeah, that one I get. But then you get like spectacles eyeglasses that doesn't make a lot of sense to me that's like a super slim item that also has glass in it and like metal and pointy things and it's like that's like trying to cram uh well a wire spring in your butt that i don't know about that one a knife sharpener seems oddly uh coarse <laughs> i don't know and a snuff box to me, is just like... So that's like a, a small box. I don't know. It, it just seems like... Uh, it seems like you could do better. Sometimes, if you're going to cram something in your butt, maybe like first thought, best thought is not a good principle. Do you know what I mean? Let's be safe here. All right. The following year, 1996 in public health, Presented to Ellen Kleist of Somewhere in Greenland and Harold Moy of Norway for their cautionary medical report, Transmission of Gonorrhea Through an Inflatable Doll, which I have for you and will read for, for you now. Uh, transmission of Gonorrhea Through an Inflatable Doll. Non-sexual transmission of gonorrhea seems to be extremely rare. Only one case of non-sexual transmission of genital... Nyseria gonorrhea is... <laughs> Nyseria gonorrhea. I know that's not correct, but here we are. Is documented in adults involving two patients in a military hospital who shared a urinal. All right. You know what? I already give this points because they're like, this has only been documented one time. I thought it wasn't going to tell me. And then it did. And I was like, you know what? That makes sense. 
Uh, gonorrhea has been shown to survive in infected secretions on towels and handkerchiefs for 20 and 24 hours, respectively. Cultures from toilet seats in public restrooms and venereal disease clinics have failed to yield gonorrhea. The skipper from a trawler who had been three months at sea sought advice for urethral discharge. His symptoms had lasted for two weeks. Now, here's one problem with this. If this was an episode of House, you can't title the episode Transmission of Gonorrhea Through an Inflatable Doll. You just have to cold open with the skipper from a trawler who had been three months at sea sought advice for urethral discharge. That is my uh, critique of this is start start with that. His symptoms had lasted for two weeks. A urethral smear showed typical intracellular gram-negative diplococci, and a culture was positive for gonorrhea. There had been no woman, woman on board the trawler. He denied homosexual contacts, and there was no doubt that the onset of the symptoms was more than two months after leaving the port. This is a, what we call a locked room mystery. A locked boat gonorrheal mystery. With some hesitation, he told the story. A few days before onset of his symptoms, he had roused the engineer in his cabin during the night because of engine trouble. After the engineer had left his cabin, the skipper found an inflatable doll with an artificial vagina in his bed, and he was tempted to have intercourse with the doll. His complaints started a few days after this episode. The engineer was examined and was found to have gonorrhea. He had observed a mild urethral discharge since they left port, but he had not been treated with antibiotics. He admitted to having ejaculated into the, quote, vagina of the doll just before the skipper called him without washing the doll afterwards. Now, hold on. He's like he admitted to having sex with a sex doll in his own cabin before the skipper called him. The skipper, excuse me, that guy didn't do anything wrong. If you have gonorrhea and you give gonorrhea to your sex doll and you didn't wash it out, that's fine. Because, like, what difference does it make? The skipper, this is kind of like, you know, if you've ever heard the thing where someone has, uh, someone keeps stealing their food at lunch, so they put, like, super spicy, like, they just pepper spray their food and put it in there in hopes that the thief will learn a lesson. I feel like that's what the skipper got here. <laughs> Uh, he also admitted to intercourse with a girl in another town some days before going to sea. The girl was traced, but the result of her examination is not known. To the best of our knowledge, no case of gonococcal transmission through an inflatable doll has been reported before. So there you go. Uh, well, so it's possible. This is kind of like an urban legend meets science, which I'm into. All right, let's see. Let's go to 1999. We've got managed health care as a category. And uh, presented to George Blonsky and Charlotte Blonsky of New York City and San Jose, California, for inventing an apparatus for facilitating the birth of a child by centrifugal force to aid women in giving birth. The woman is strapped into a circular table, and the table is then rotated at high speed. <laughs> um, this was kind of a, a good runner-up year as well, uh, partially in 
the presentation of the Peace Prize presented to Charles Forey and Michelle Wong of Johannesburg, South Africa for inventing the blaster, a foot pedal activated flamethrower that motorists can use against carjackers. You know what the thing is, is, uh, with the, you know, like these car devices that shoot out flames or like James Bond throws out road spikes or some shit. I've seen how many of you motherfuckers accidentally set the alarm on your car off, right? When you're like walking into the Denny's or something. So if it's, if you can set off the alarm by accident this often, like I've seen it many times, I would say most times that I go out, this seems to happen. If, if this is possible, uh, I don't, I'm not super comfortable with you having a flamethrower. Just saying. All right, let's go to 2001, which is the year that so far I've decided is the best year uh, as a whole. Uh, Astrophysics, presented to Jack Van Imp and Rexella Van Imp of Jack Van Imp Ministries, Michigan, for their discovery that black holes fulfill all the technical requirements for the location of hell. <laughs> This is the first I'm hearing that there are technical requirements of the location of hell. Um, as far as I could tell, there's no citation on this one, unfortunately. But I was like, well, maybe it's just like, uh, maybe it's just about, well, you can't prove that hell's not in black holes. So it could be in there. And that is the technical, technical need. Biology was presented to Buck Weimer of Pueblo, Colorado, local boy done good, for inventing Underease, airtight underwear with a replaceable charcoal filter that removes bad-smelling gases before they escape. I would like to test this invention. I, I wonder about the combination of uh, efficacy and comfort. That seems like a, a difficult thing to, to manage, but it seems possible. Uh, also, it just involves farts, so that's why it's here. Uh, let's see. Economics was presented to some people for their conclusion that people find a way to postpone their deaths if that would qualify them for a lower rate on the inheritance tax. <laughs> I don't even really know what that means. This sounds like rich people stuff that I will never understand, but... My uh, basic assumption here is that what we're talking about is people saying, okay, if I can postpone my death for like two months, get us into the, the next financial quarter, that'll help me. And in terms of inheritance taxes, I guess. I mean, it's like if you have the choice to extend your life, I don't know. Uh, literature was presented to some guy, founder of the Apostrophe Protection Society, for his efforts to protect, promote, and defend the differences between the plural and the possessive. <laughs> that seems like a losing battle. But you know, I'm all for a worthless cause. Like, just because you're not going to be successful doesn't mean the cause isn't a good one. Um, medicine presented to some guy for his impactful medical report, injuries due to falling coconuts. 
I can only assume most of the research was done by watching Gilligan's Island. Peace was presented to some guy in Lithuania for creating the amusement park known as Stalin World. Now, I looked up Stalin World because it still exists. Um, the actual website uh, was not that amusing because it, it turned out to be... Um, it's this park that kind of has like a bunch of Soviet statues and communist stuff from not great times in Lithuania. So it's not like, oh, Stalin is amazing park. It's like, this is our history, you know, and whatever. And they had kind of a thoughtful thing about, this is how we take it out of context. So instead of having the statues like up on a big plinth or whatever, they're just kind of in the woods and they're just around. So you can still see them and see these things, but you don't have to be maybe as intimidated by them or, you know, it puts you on the same level or something like that. Um, but one of the parts I liked, <laughs> um, let's see. Some ideas originally meant to be a part of the park were never allowed. Examples include transporting the visitors in a gulag style train. <laughs> um, there also is kind of a problem because I guess the Lithuanian Copyright Protection Agency requires royalties be paid to seven Lithuanian artists who created some of the statues. So you've got this guy who made this statue of, like, Joseph Stalin, and then they're like, well, uh, technically, we have to pay him money if we put this on display. And you're like, mm, that's not ideal. But anyway... It was it was kind of funny because I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is a terrible idea. And then I looked at the park itself and stuff and I was like, I mean, this is not a horrendous idea, I guess. I mean, I'm trying to imagine, I guess, in the United States having like a Confederate park, you know, and it's all these Stonewall Jackson statues and stuff that people are like, what are we going to do with this fucking thing? You know, it's like I got to imagine being the mayor of a city and everyone just throws it in the river or something, I think I would be sort of relieved. Because I'd be like, well, I mean, if we took it down, we'd have to, like, warehouse it somewhere or something. Like, I can't I can't just throw it in the river as the mayor. But if, it, if I just woke up tomorrow and it had been thrown in the river last night, I kind of just dust my hands off and walk away, right? Um, physics. Some guy, for his partial explanation of the shower curtain effect, a shower curtain tends to billow inwards while a shower is being taken. I mean, does anyone care about that? It's just like heat, water, whatever. You know, who gives a shit? Psychology to some guy, for his influential report, an ecological study of glee in small groups of preschool children. Uh, this is glee, the feeling, not the show. Public health. Presented to a couple people in India for their probing medical history discovery that nose picking is common activity among adolescents. <laughs> I'm gonna like rub that in in some teenager's face when some punk teen is calling me old man. I'll be like, "Yeah, look at this scientific study that says you're a nose picker." Now who's laughing? And technology presented to some guy in Australia. For patenting the wheel in the year 2001, 
and it was also presented to the Australian Patent Office for granting him an innovation patent for the wheel. <laughs> Which is awesome. You know, I just I read this thing because someone was talking about the wheel and like the invention of the wheel and how come it came so late in history and stuff. But he was like, the problem was not inventing the wheel. The problem was inventing the axle. Because, like, the wheel wasn't that out of reach. It's like, all right, round things roll down a hill. It's easier to get a round thing going. So why wouldn't why wouldn't you invent the cart until so late in human history? And it's like, well, because you couldn't invent an axle, which allows the wheel to turn while still be sort of held in place. So there you go. Why reinvent the wheel should be why reinvent the axle. If you want to be a real asshole, a real axle, in your next meeting, when someone says, why reinvent the wheel, you should say, actually, I think that we should be talking about that in terms of reinventing the axle. Because the axle is what really made the innovation, not the wheel. Uh, so I think that that's how this should work. So in the future, I would prefer if you referred to it as inventing the axle. Oh